and welcome to the Destiny Church Podcast. We trust that this will be a great encouragement to you and build your faith. Enjoy today's message. Um, would you guys do me a huge favor and welcome to the Destiny Church stage, Mark Turnage. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. If you will go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. We're living in interesting days. And one of the things that concerns me is that the world that we're living in is asking very challenging, pointed, and difficult questions. And I'm not sure that we have the answers for them because we're not asking difficult questions within our own house. And one of the things that I hope as you're going through this Life of Christ series, and let me just encourage you, if you haven't started yet, jump in. We sang this morning about Jesus. And one of the things that I have realized over my years of study and teaching and all the other nonsense I find myself in at times is that we are really good at getting people excited and passionate about Jesus. But we don't know what he said. And if we're going to answer the questions and the challenges that our world is putting to us, we need to get back to encountering the words of Jesus. We need to begin to read them, asking what did he mean so that we can understand what that means for us today. This is the challenge that we face. Obviously, today is Palm Sunday, and this kicks off Holy Week, which of course will culminate next weekend in Easter. Palm Sunday, of course, remembers this event that we read about in the Gospels where Jesus has made a pilgrimage from where he lives in the Galilee to Jerusalem. Why has he done this? To celebrate the festival of Passover. Last night, the Jewish community around the world celebrated the first night of Passover. What's Passover about? It remembers the story of the Exodus, where God, working through Moses, brought redemption out of Egyptian bondage for his people. And last night, as Jewish families around the world celebrated the first night of Passover, they made this statement, we were slaves in Egypt, but today we are free. And according to the law of Moses, every able-bodied Jewish male was to make a pilgrimage to the place where God chose Jerusalem, in order to celebrate this festival that commemorated redemption 
and liberty. Basically, Passover is Jewish 4th of July. Okay? And so Jesus comes and he rides into town on this wave of popularity, which, by the way, never diminishes in his final week in Jerusalem. Some of you may say, but hold on. We're celebrating Palm Sunday. And I know that the crowds that cry Hosanna on Palm Sunday are going to turn on him on Good Friday. I challenge you to go read your Gospels carefully. Luke tells us that the crowds crying Hosanna are the crowds of his disciples. Let me remind you, when is it? that the chief priests of the temple in Jerusalem have to come out against Jesus. What time of day? Night. Why? Because of his popularity with the people. They would not need to come out against him at night if the crowds had turned against him. The crowds of Jerusalem never turned their back on Jesus. Ultimately, those who were the power brokers of the day, he was a threat to their power and their money. And therefore they had to remove him. We'll be talking a bit more about that in some of the videos with the Life of Christ series over this next week. So make sure you pay attention. But Jesus comes in to Jerusalem on this wave of enthusiasm. Let me paint the picture of what these people were experiencing. In the first century, the land of Israel, the land that God promised to Abraham and his descendants was under the dominion of the Roman Empire. One of the most brutal, pagan, and wicked empires in the world. Now, by the first century, most Jewish people agreed on three things. Number one, there's only one God and he's ours. So all the gods of the Greeks and the Romans, they're not real. There's only one God, and he's our God. Number two, we are his chosen people. And number three, only when we are free can we truly worship God the way he intends. Now understand something about that third statement. Because often we will say, well, the people living in the land of Israel were expecting political redemption. But make no mistake, the removal of Rome was simply to create an environment where the people could spiritually worship God the way he intended. You following me? So it's not, well, they were expecting a political redeemer and Jesus came talking spiritual. They're intertwined. But Roman dominion challenges all three of those statements, right? There's only one God. He's ours. Why are the Romans here? We're his chosen people. How do you explain Rome's rule? And finally, only when we are free can we truly worship God the way he intends. We're kind of in a stuck situation. So the response is going to be three different responses. We're going to work in threes here today. Something kind of Trinitarian about that, I guess. (laughs) 
Anyway, the first response is going to say it is a sin for us to submit to Roman authority. Okay, so what do you do when Rome is in power? Because only God is supposed to be our king, you take up the sword and you fight and you spill blood. Number two, there are those who said, you know what? We can't control this. We can't fight Rome. All this is going to work out in the end. And so we're just going to passively sit by and let God in his time solve the problems of the world. So there's almost this, on the one hand, you get this kind of militant activism. And on the other hand, you get this almost apocalyptic passivism. Does that sound familiar? Because by the way, I've heard both voices over the last year coming out of the Christian community. Then there's a third way. And this was Jesus's way. And this way said that the people of God are under Roman dominion because of our sin. If therefore you want Rome to be removed, you submit to God's rule and God's reign. How do we do that? Obedience. And ultimately, this idea says that repentance will bring redemption. In other words, we have a role to play in this. I started off by saying that we are living in a world that is asking a lot of tough questions. It doesn't mean that we have to have all the answers. But the world still waits to see communities submitted in obedience to the king of the universe. I said that last night, the Jewish community around the world in their celebration of the Passover read the statement, we were slaves in Egypt. In Leviticus 25, God says, Israel is a servant or a slave for me. I redeem them so that they can be my servants. Often, we get so excited about our liberty and our freedom. Not only in the United States, but in the church. Never make a mistake. What God does in our life is to equip us to serve him. It is not about us. It is about him. And one of the things where we're at risk And I'm very concerned about this because when we look at our world today, we're running the risk of losing generations. We have developed our faith into a narcissism where we're at the center of it. What can God do for me? What does the Bible say to me? And folks, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about him. He is the king. You are not. He is the ruler. I am not. 
Our job is to be submitted in obedience to him. And then he gets to make the rules. We get to follow them. That's what it means to transform. And the thing that we see that Jesus is about is explaining to the people, here's how repentance looks. It's not about saying, I'm sorry. It's about walking in obedience. And so we have this story that Luke places within this event of the triumphal entry. And we read in Luke 19 verses 41 and following. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that even today you knew the things. Circle that. Highlight it, whatever you need to do. The things that make for peace. But now they are hid from your eyes, for the day shall come upon you when your enemies will cast a bank about you and surround you and hem you in on every side and dash you to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. We have fallen into an, inter an interpretive problem here because we tend to say, well, the people of Jerusalem, the Jewish people rejected Jesus, but that's not what he says. It's not about them rejecting his person. It's about them rejecting the things that make for peace. So what are those things? You see, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he sees a city that on the one hand has the wealthiest temple within the entire Roman Empire. The chief priests of the temple in Jerusalem are a elite aristocracy that have used their position to gain great wealth. And the tactics that they use to protect that at time, not just at times, often resembled that of a mafia. On the other hand, you have a city that while the people are celebrating this festival of redemption and liberty have to do so under the Roman eagle. And then you have, on the one hand, those who are saying, we need to fight. We need to shed blood. We need to take up the sword and fight Rome in order for God to weigh in on our behalf. We have those that say, you know what? Let's pull back to the desert and God will figure this whole thing out. And our enemies will be swallowed up in this end of days apocalypse. And Jesus rides into that city and it broke his heart. We live in one of the most polarized ages I can ever remember. And 
what I see happening too much and we are complicit in it is that we're drawing up our own battle lines. If we do not begin to look across at the person on the other side of the conversation or our yelling matches as they were, even if they're virtual, and allow our heart to be broken, we're going to lose. What are those things that make for peace? It's interesting that Jesus, often when he speaks, his words are laced with allusions to Old Testament passages. And in his words where he says, would that even today you knew the things that make for peace, but they are hidden from your eyes. He alludes to two passages. The first one is Isaiah 27, 5, which says, he will make peace for me. Peace he will make for me. This is talking about God's peace with people. And then in Proverbs 28, 27, it reads, He who gives to the poor will not be in want, but he who shuts his eyes will be greatly cursed. It's the only time we have this language of to make peace and hidden from your eyes in the Old Testament. What's Jesus driving at here? What are those things that make for peace? This is something we talk a lot about in our world today. Peace. We even hear within the church talk of being peacemakers. It's interesting that Jesus doesn't speak a lot about peace, but he does in one instance. And that we find in Matthew 5, 9. So flip over there with me for a moment. And in Matthew 5, 9, we hear this language of blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons or children of God. Now, this is something that we read this today and we understand it within the context of our peacemaking efforts, right? So we think of it as running into the place of conflict and trying to solve the conflict between peoples. But one of the things to note is this language of peacemaking in Jesus's day is going to have two parts to it. The ultimate part is making peace between God and his people. But the mechanism that makes peace between God and his people is making peace between one another. And how do we do that? I want to submit to you this morning that there's only one other place in the Gospels that Jesus ever talks about us being children of God. And that's also found in Matthew chapter 5. And that's found in Matthew 5 verses 43 and following. So let's read this a second. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your father who is in heaven. What is, according to Jesus, the evidence that we are children of our father who is in heaven? Loving those who hate us. It's not about what we do when we come into this building on a Sunday morning. It's not about how loud we sing, although that's great. It's not about our small groups. It is about how we love our enemies. Think about that for one second. Think about the world that we live in right now. Think about the year that we just came through. Love your enemy. That solves issues, red state, blue state. That solves issues racially. That solves issues Love your enemy. How do we make peace? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Love your enemy so that you may be children of God. How we treat others is a testimony to our relationship with God. How we treat those who don't like us, those who we don't like, is a testimony to our relationship with Jesus. It's not about what we feel. It's not about how high we can get our goosebumps. It is about how we step into the lives of other people and care. It's about how we step in and show mercy, and forgive, and show charity. And that comes back to this point that Jesus is saying in Luke 19. It's hidden from your eyes. The one that is blessed is the one that takes care of those who are in need. But the one who is cursed is the one who hides his eyes from it. You look at... Those generations, and I'm not always a fan of all the different letters and stuff like that, although I wear my Gen X badge pretty proudly. <laughs> I am, what can I do about it? Um, but you look at millennials and younger, and one of their big criticisms of the church is we sometimes walk through life more concerned about people's souls than where they're at in the moment. We create our communities that think like us. And I'm not saying that, I'm not, I'm not arguing here for some kind of, you know, we need to accept everything. No, we need to stand for what is right. But our 
beliefs can never come in confrontation with our loving our enemy. We can say very direct comments and conversations, but if people do not sense our love, our compassion, our mercy, then they do not care about any theology or belief structure that we want to shout from the rooftop. I often say we may be able to argue with Mother Teresa's theology, we can't argue with her life. And it's not always in this day and age that people are wanting us to have the answers to all questions because we're, we're also human, right? We don't know. Pastor Chad was asking about those that have been struggling with anxiety. We, we have anxiety. We have our issues just like everyone out there. But what makes a difference? Love those who hate you. And when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he looks out over a city where on the one hand, you have the power of the chief priests and the temple, and they are getting rich while people are suffering. And they've hidden their eyes from it. But on the other hand, you have this attitude that says, we will make peace through the sword. And Jesus sees that both of those are leading that city into the abyss. And about 40 years later, Roman forces are going to surround, just like he says, Jerusalem. The temple's going to burn. The city's going to be destroyed. And frankly, Judaism has never been the same since. And what's interesting, the Jewish sages after this event of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, they get together and they say, why did this happen? And they say two things. Because they loved money and they hated one another. Exactly what Jesus says. Would today you know the things that make for peace? It's not about us just going around saying, hey, can't we all get along? But it's about ultimately by us making peace here, we're making peace between people and God. That's the end goal. And we're not going to do it on the weight of our arguments, on the weight of our theological language, we're going to do it by loving those who hate us. Forgiving. Let me just ask you a quick question as we start to kind of move this to the time of communion. Let me ask you this question. Think back over the last year, just in our country. What would it say to people if we, here in Destiny Church, walked out loving your enemies? 
loving those who hate you. What'd that say? What statement would that make in this community? You can't argue with that. And, and honestly, the world that we're living in right now has become so vitriolic, so polarized, that this stands out like a sore thumb. We have never had a better opportunity to walk out the faith of Jesus than today. But we're too busy drawing up our battle lines. We're too busy trying to make sure that we win that argument on Facebook, which of course will go down in the annals of history, right? (laughs) As we go through this next week, this Holy Week leading up to Easter, I wanna challenge you with something. I know that we're not immune ourselves from the world that we're living in. We're not immune from this the tolls of this last year. But I would challenge you this week, as you reflect on Jesus's last week, don't make it about you. Cast off this narcissism that we find ourselves in so often within the church. The best way that we can demonstrate our recognition of what this week meant for Jesus is to look to other people. Even people we may not like or who do not like us. You want to celebrate what Jesus did, love your enemy. You want to recognize the power of the resurrection? Look for an opportunity to reach out to someone you may not pay attention to normally. Doesn't have to always be an animosity there. Maybe you just walk by people in your daily life because family and kids and jobs and anxiety. Take a moment and take a look around you because there are people in our community that need to feel a Jesus that wept when he saw the brokenness of his world. Don't make this week about you and what God has done for you. Make this week about him. And the only way we can make it about him is by looking at those he created and looking to them. That's my challenge to you. We're gonna transition now. And as we consecrate this Holy Week, we're gonna celebrate communion together. And I want to talk a bit about this because actually this plays into what we've just talked about. 
We get our liturgy of communion from Paul in 1 Corinthians. And the Corinthian church was Paul's most charismatically alive, but it was his most screwed up. And one of the big problems that runs through every issue he deals with with them is the fact that there were divisions among them. You see this throughout his letter that he writes that we call 1 Corinthians. And what was going on with them when it came time to celebrate the Lord's Supper was they would come together, the wealthy would get there earlier, they would eat and get drunk, the poor, those who were slaves even, would come, there would be nothing left for them. They've got a problem within the community. Now, I'm going to be really honest here, and maybe Chad will never have me back after saying this. But when I was a kid growing up in church, I hated communion. Hated it. Because, well, what happened, right? We dimmed the lights. You know, in my day, the organ music came on. And what are you supposed to do? Examine yourself. Close yourself off with you and God. And we use... Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians to do this. And what we've done where we've missed Paul is we've made communion also all about us. Because when Paul talks about not discerning the body and blood of the Lord in 1 Corinthians, the body is not Jesus' physical body. The body is the believing community. And what's happening in community, when, when they come together to celebrate the Lord's table, some are getting fed, getting drunk, and others don't have anything. And they think that they're representing Jesus by not looking around them. We can't start paying attention to those out there until we start paying attention to these in here. And I would say it like this, if Paul were here today, what he would encourage us is that we not take these next moments and turn them inwardly. Thinking about what God has done for me, right? Again, I always hated this examining yourself because I mean, it's like, I mean, I'm a kid for crying out loud. And some of you in here knew me when I was younger. I was, I, I always had like a list. I needed a, like a whole church service just to, for my confession. Right? I kicked the dog. I yelled at my brother. You know, I was, didn't do what my mom told me, whatever. But that's not the point. What we need to do is go, you know what? I know you're struggling. We saw a room full of hands raised because people have anxiety, been struggling with anxiety. I guarantee you some of that anxiety is financial. I guarantee you some of that anxiety is an isolation and a loneliness that we've all experienced over this past year that is incredible. And what we need to do is look to that person sitting next to us and go, how are you doing? 
What can I do to help you? I know you've been struggling in your marriage. How are you coming along with that? I know you, are you okay with your groceries? Are you okay with your electric bill? Can we go get a cup of coffee this week? I'm sure it's been really isolating for you this past year. Just wanna let you know I'm here, we're friends. And after we do that, then we come and we take the bread and the grape juice. That's what it means to recognize the body of the Lord. Thank you so much for joining us. Special thanks to those of you who give to this ministry. It's because of you that this ministry is possible. You can check out the link in the description to give or visit destinychurch.me slash give. Don't forget to subscribe and share with your friends. We love you and have a blessed week.